Part 1. One of the earliest discoveries of a stone idol depicting Quetzalcoatl, or the plumed serpent, was unearthed at the ancient Olmec site of La Venta. This is now in the Mexican state of Tabasco. The archaeologists who found it labeled it Stella 19. It's pretty interesting image. Here's Susan Vogel. It appears to show a person leaning, sitting against a plumed serpent. The serpent sort of um, nestles across the person's back, and the person has some sort of a helmet or headdress on and is holding a basket, which is thought to hold copal and incense. The Olmec were among the first civilizations to develop in the Americas. This mother culture of Mesoamerica formed about some 1,500 to 400 years before the birth of Christ by the Western calendar. But it turns out that they had their own calendar, probably the world's first long-count calendar tracking days, months, and years. At this time in Mesoamerican history, is there's a lot up for grabs. So people um, are constantly analyzing these objects and um, coming up with different ideas of what they represent. So sometimes when we teach this time period, the students are frustrated because we can't say definitively what a lot of things are. And again, the research is continually changing. Quetzalcoatl represents the worldview of these ancient Mesoamericans. One such view has come to be known as cosmovision. It's, for me, it's the, those beings that connect God with men. This is Fanny Blower. They're holy gods, meaning it's God as representatives in the earth. Um, we look at the Jawar. The Jawar represented for the Olmecs the ruler, the ruler of the darkness, uh, meaning the best warriors and the highest classes in their, in their society. The snakes represented the territorial world and the making the mankind of the knowledge. So when we see those elements of wisdom and warriors and uh, the strongest rulers and the men combined with, in, within the scenery of this piece is what I would call the cosmovision. All the elements of the universe complied in the figure of what a human is. So my understanding of cosmovision um, encompasses a couple different things. One, there's definitely this, uh, this duality within that. Um, for example, uh, the, the feathered serpent would be Quetzalcoatl, right? But he does have his counterpart uh, in, in Mesoamerican belief system, and both uh, both of these deities are required for certain things to happen, right? And you'll see that pattern throughout pretty much everything. And also the idea that we don't, well, in these cultures, many times you see humanity and these other ideas like, all interconnected at the same time. Many times I know here, like today, for example, people think of, let's say, the afterlife. Well, once life ends, then you enter this realm. It's, it's not that way uh, during this time period and, and these ideas. It's all happening at the same time, and it's all interconnected. So Wait, what's that? Let's hear that again. It's all happening at the same time, and it's all interconnected. Now, stop and think about that for a moment. This life and the afterlife, all interconnected? Apparently, this mindset shaped everything about the day-to-day lives of these people. We know from textual and archaeological records that it influenced everything down to how they organized their lives and designed their rituals, their customs, and their cities. 
Fanny says that today, in many ways, we can still see this worship of ancestors in Mexican society. Everything that they were able to contemplate during the day or during the night, the natural phenomenon, they were able to connect that with the vision that there was this cosmos uh, energy that was producing and making things happen. Uh, and based on that, they would um, create the idea of their society. They will influence the, the views of that society based on what the cosmos was saying in a certain time of the, of the year. It wasn't necessarily a year of 12 months, right? But it was the time that they created based on the farming or the harvesting or the growing. Um, they uh, created political practices and religious practices based on what they saw. So everything was connected with what the earth was providing to these, to these uh, humans. And um, they were able to create religion based on, on how they saw the sky, for example, at night, the, the shapes of the stars. Um, they were able to, to, to create symbolisms uh, based on all these formations of uh, mountains and the light of the sun and the rain and the, how the plants were growing. And so it's all connected with the cosmos. <laughs> wow. And, and so now this, this fundamental understanding of cosmovision, this is a sort of worldview that persisted from what we believe from the Olmecs to up through the, the Aztecs, through the Mayans. I mean, we're talking about generally Mesoamerican people. people. Generally, yeah. Okay. So the Olmecs are considered the mother culture. And uh, one of the characteristics is they believe that the, um, their, that the Olmec people were the product of a union between a woman and a jaguar. So one thing I think interesting, we don't have jaguars here in <laughs> where we live in Utah. And uh, I've had, never had the privilege of encountering one. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, they are the, the top of the food chain. And in Mesoamerica, they're, they're probably very, very scary to these indigenous people and probably pretty awesome as well. They, are, um, they're, they love the water. They're one, a feline that loves the water, which makes it extremely versatile. If you're going to choose some, some animal or reptile to protect you, you might choose a jaguar. <laughs> The other thing about the Olmecs is their name, which was given to them much later, um, indicates they're the rubber people or the people who had rubber. This is the first, they're the first people who harvested and used rubber. And so this is, this is, if you, if you Google rubber, this is where it first was used. And so they used it in balls. They had ball courts. They also used it to waterproof vessels, which is a huge, hugely important thing in this time. It turns out another thing that these ancient Mesoamericans are known for is something called bloodletting, the act of piercing yourself or someone else as a way to influence the cosmos as an offering. It's, it's interesting when, when you think about the beginning of time and how people are trying to understand the universe and if that sun comes up and maybe it came up after a few drops of your blood fell on the ground, you might drop a few more the next morning. <laughs> so. Some think this notion of bloodletting was connected to the practice of human sacrifice, which is definitely something that's continued to fascinate people, even if it's been embellished. Yet for all its life-affirming splendor, 
Aztec culture was also steeped in a cult of death. Now, that last clip, I remember seeing Mel Gibson's film Apocalypto in the mid-2000s, and I have to say, I was pretty shocked and disturbed. It depicts an Aztec ritual human sacrifice. A man, a captured enemy, is held down on an altar while a priest cuts out his heart and holds it up to the cheers of thousands of Aztecs at the base of a temple. Some archaeologists speculate the Aztecs may have sacrificed around 20,000 victims a year. What was the purpose of this? I want to say, well, according to, to you know, stories and a couple codices, um, it, it is believed that the Mexica, which were the primary group of the Aztec Empire, practice human sacrifice. Right? And it was tied into their beliefs. Uh, it was tied into these ideas that we have to please the gods. Um, from my experience, there has been some debate as to whether this was something practiced throughout Mesoamerica, as I, I do have um, uh, an old professor of mine who is Nahua. Uh, he's a native speaker, and uh, in his communities, he says there's no there's no record of, of his people practicing that. But it is something that we hear pretty often, and so uh, I do think the, the idea of sacrifice is something that has transcended from that time period, uh, at least to my family to this day. Not human sacrifice, let me <laughs> clarify that. We're not <laughs> cutting people open, but the idea that sacrifice is part of life, right? And so that's something that, that we still practice, uh, and we know that when we go through difficult times, it's necessary in order for us to transcend into this next, next time period in our life or this next uh, moment. The Spanish, specifically Cortes, made reference to human sacrifices in his letters to Charles V, the king of Spain, about Tenochtitlan. A todos los españoles que tomaron, los sacrificaron, sacándoles los corazones para ofrecérselos a sus ídolos. Desde el día en que se puso cerco a la ciudad hasta que se ganó, pasaron 75 días con muchos peligros y desventuras que sus vasallos padecieron. Here's Fanny. He uh, clearly talks about how people will be you know, laying down and cutting in the middle and grabbing the heart and dedicating this heart. However, it's important to understand that either it happened or not, um, that the act of sacrifice was not to, to enjoy the pleasure of killing. Um, the way I see it, it's, again, a connection with the cosmovision. Um, we are... Uh, live entities. We are human beings who are alive, who are able to produce life, and in order to produce life, we have to give life. And it's a cycle of life where we have th their idea, how I understand it, is that they had to feed life to their gods so their gods could continue producing for them. It was an honor, really, to offer blood or to offer the most important organ in the human body as the heart to the gods so they would, uh, the, the gods will continue to feed us. As, as it's a cycle of life. And it is more known, um, the human sacrifice in Mesoamerica is probably more high profile because it's so fascinating. The cultures are so fascinating. The, the monumentality of the um, the pyramids and, you know, we're just, it's just so fascinating to learn about these cultures. But historically, it's, it's not a unique thing. 
Um, I just went, traced my DNA to um, Scandinavia, big surprise, <laughs> with a little bit of Iberian, thanks to those Vikings who got around. Um, but they engaged in human sacrifice, and the Greeks engaged in human sacrifice to make the wind blow. Um, all kinds of cultures engaged in human sacrifice. I think I read that they also found evidence of human sacrifice at Monk's Mound in Illinois. And so that's one of the pyramids that we called mounds. Um, and this was from about 950 to 1100 Common Era. So it overlapped with the time that this was going on in Mesoamerica. If I reflect on how these gruesome stories and images make me feel, there's definitely a part of me, maybe that same part that those early Spanish explorers like Cortez felt, that these human sacrifices and this bloodletting were just acts of savagery. Savagery that perhaps maybe deserved to be wiped out. But with that, I'm imposing my own cultural, modern perception on all this. I'm trying to open my mind to this whole Cosmovision thing. It, it's a subject that, that has been, it is very sensitive still and can be very highly criticized in terms of uh, when, the, when we uh, enter into the subject of religion, for example, and how is that the, the Spanish arrived in Mexico and said these horrible sacrifices uh, of people you know, grabbing the heart and dedicated to the god of the sun or the rain or the moon and but when I think about it, the continuation of that idea in a different way is still the same. Um, the Spanish arrived, they teach that there is this man who died on the cross. The image of the Christ is not the Christ as, uh, I would say, I'm, I'm going to compare it with the LDS Church, for example, is the idea of the resurrection, so it's this white image of Jesus raising, right? But the image that the Spanish thought was, um, is this Christ bloody body and he died for you. And their representation of connecting with this God is through the Holy um, Communion. We drink wine mm. and we take a piece of bread and the wine represents the blood. It's exactly the same thing. <laughs> no, no, I, I agree. As you both said that, I was like, my head, like trying to make the connections, and absolutely, it's it's just the lens that they're they're viewing this through. You know, and I think Susan was saying that earlier is we tend to look at you know this this culture through our current lens, and we have to kind of check that at the door when we look at these because obviously we've we have influences that weren't around at the time. So, yeah, absolute sacrifice is definitely present in both Mesoamerica and modern cultures. Mm-hmm. I grew sure. up. Methodist, and we didn't have the bloody cross or the bloody Jesus, and we thought that was kind of horrifying. Yeah. But uh, we did learn that God gave his only son, sacrificed, sacrificed his son there so we go. can live. <laughs> there you go. That was Luis Lopez, Fanny Guadalupe Blauer, and Susan Vogel. You'll be hearing a lot more from them throughout this series, and we'll be bringing in other diverse voices into these discussions about the complex and fascinating intersection of how art shapes our perceptions of history when it comes to Mexico. You can see an image of Stella 19 at La Venta and learn more about Cosmovision in Mesoamerica at the website and home for this podcast, artismexut.org. 
Stay tuned. In the next episode, we'll be talking about Diego Rivera's vision of the ancient city of Tenochtitlan. Music you heard in this episode comes from Leo Sanchez and Ricardo Lozana and Jorge Ramos. Thanks to KCPW, Salt Lake Public Radio, for the studio space. This podcast is made possible from a grant from the Utah Humanities. I'm Ross Chambliss.